As Nathan mentioned, my name is Drew. I'm here with my wife, Katrina, and two-month-old son, Jackson. Uh, So it's a joy to be with you here on our first Father's Day. Uh, So Jackson came to be with us not too long ago, and if you hear him cry out, that's his only way of saying amen. He can't talk yet. (laughs) But we come from Capitol Hill Baptist Church down in Washington, D.C., and we bring our greetings. We pray for you guys in our Sunday evening service, so it's a joy to be partners in the gospel with you, as well as I got to meet Chris, your pastor, down at the SBC this past week, and um, one of the things that made me most excited to come and join you is the affection that your pastor speaks with you. So I just want to bring you uh, a word of encouragement that your pastor loves you. And, uh, and so it's a joy to be with you here today. So let me pray for our time and then we'll jump in. God, we praise you for your word. You have not kept us guessing what you're like. But through your word, we can know who you are and we can see you clearly. Help us see you clearly now, in Jesus' name, amen. One frosty New York morning, my friend Ryan woke up for a big day. It was a big day with big plans and big expectations. Today was the day of his proposal. After many months of friendship and fun, Ryan had plans to ask his beloved Caitlin to be his wife. And Caitlin... She's a spunky Minnesota girl with a vibrant spirit, a beautiful humor, and a killer voice. And Caitlin loves surprises. So, Ryan planned a series of surprises for Caitlin. Her favorite people at her favorite places with all her favorite things. Little crumbs of joy all leading to a final destination of Bethesda Fountain in the heart of Central Park. It was there that she would find her biggest surprise of all, her boy who would ask to be her man. It was a frosty New York morning, and my friend Caitlin woke up for a big day. But for her, she woke up thinking today was just another day. She did not know the plans that were in store for her, but soon enough, she would. A knock on her door. Here's a surprise for you, but there's another one coming. A note. Follow it. There's another messenger who will tell you what to do. A flicker of joy with new excitement of expectation. Could today be the day? Out the door into the brisk city air. Another messenger. Another surprise. Another note. Another comes after me with each step moving closer and closer to a destination that she did not yet know, until strolling down the Central Park Mall, crossing under the arcade that goes under 72nd Street, and seeing Ryan waiting there by the fountain. The moment that she had waited for was here. The man that she had waited for had come. Today, in our passage, we will take a similar journey. Consider this the knock on your door. Another is coming, and he is the one you have waited for. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark. If you've got a Bible, you can open up to Mark chapter 1. And as you turn there, 
Mark wrote one of the history books recording the life and ministry of Jesus. Each of these histories, called the Gospels, has an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus behind it. Matthew and John were part of Jesus' 12 disciples. Luke was Paul's doctor. So he collected first-hand accounts from Paul. And Mark? Mark got his material from the apostle Peter. So each of these four accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has a historical eyewitness of Jesus behind it. Mark was most likely the first to write it down. We know this because it seems as though his written account was circulated and could have been in the possession of the other gospel writers. And let me tell you one of the great benefits of Mark. He gets right to the action. He's brief and to the point. As you'll see in our passage, he doesn't mess around. His gospel takes off quick. So let's read together. We're going to read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Amen. In this passage, we hear three voices. We hear an old voice. In verses 1 to 6. Then we hear a new voice in verses 7 to 8. And then lastly, we hear a divine voice in verses 9 to 11. Let's start off with our first voice. It's an old voice. In fact, it's so old, it's not even the voice of an old man, but a dead man. Isaiah, the great prophet of Judah, who watched the dynasty of David get exiled into Babylon. It's his voice living on through Scripture. And Isaiah had a big job, and it was a tough one. He had to preach to a people who would not listen to him. He was commissioned by God to announce a message of judgment and salvation to God's people. And in his message, the great prophet said, The Lord is coming. Look back at the first three verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Did you hear the news? The Lord is coming. He's going to send a messenger who's going to prepare his highway, and then the Lord is coming. Can you feel the sense of expectation in Isaiah? Yes, today is where Israel will be exiled, but another day is coming. A messenger is coming, and after that, the Lord is coming. Behold, I am sending my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The messenger is the leading indicator of the arrival of the Lord. But where is he? How will we find this messenger? He is the voice of one shouting in the wilderness. Look in the wilderness. What a strange yet appropriate place for Isaiah to point. The wilderness. Israel's staging area on the far side of the Jordan before the conquest of the promised land. Go, look there, where the population is sparse, where the vegetation is scarce. Go and look in the wilderness. The king is getting ready to begin his conquest. And you will know the messenger when you hear him shouting the message that prepares the way of the Lord. The messenger will have a message. I prepare the way. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. An old voice of Isaiah cries out, look for the messenger preparing the way of the Lord. You will find him in the wilderness. He's coming. And then the Lord is coming. Look at verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Look, the messenger, the precursor to the coming of the Lord, the one who prepares the way of the Lord is here. It's John, the one who Isaiah anticipated. He is here baptizing with a repentance, with a baptism of repentance into the forgiveness of sins. What better way to prepare for the Lord's coming? Addressing head-on the main barrier between the Lord and His people. Sin. Friends, there's some people today who will say, why do you Christians have to make such a big deal about sin? Can't we just focus on the good in people? You guys are such downers. The short answer is, no, we can't. How can we ignore the primary point of conflict in our relationship with God? How can we ignore the separation that separates us? Try to talk about Christianity without reference to sin is like sitting in a room with an elephant there. Every, it leaves everyone feeling awkward and thinking, there's an elephant in the room. Somebody shoot it. Notice how John takes and prepares the way of the Lord by talking about sin. There's no preparation, better preparation for the Lord's coming than to speak of the central enemy that the Lord is coming to overthrow. My non-Christian friends, one of the reasons that you should trust the Bible is because it addresses the elephant in the room. 
you and I have transgressed against God. And according to the scripture, we may be better than the person next to us, but we are a debtor to righteousness and a slave to sin. What you most need in your life is to address the elephant in the room. What do you do about your sin? How do you get right with God? The answer is repentance into the forgiveness of sin. Do not run away from your imperfections. Confess them to God. Side with God against your sins. Repent. Turn. Your forgiveness depends upon it. But how can that be enough? Who will pay the debt of my sins? Friends, this is only the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And by the time you reach the end, Jesus will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The wages of sin is death and he will lay down his life by dying on a tree. Not only laying his life down, but taking it back up again. The check will clear, the tomb will be empty, the resurrection will happen, and Jesus will ascend to place his perfect sin offering at the feet of the Father. And when his work is done, he will sit down and intercede for all who call upon his name. Repent into the forgiveness of sins. You have no other hope. And kids, pay special attention to the sequence that John talks about. Repentance precedes forgiveness. God is not obligated to forgive your sins. Because you're coming to church, he's not obligated to forgive your sins because your mom and dad are Christians. The church and your parents play the same role as John does. They are preparation. They are preparing the way, and there is no better preparation for the Lord than to encourage you to acknowledge your sins and to repent. You must repent of your sins. It is the sin that has offended God, but the Lord's messenger comes with news that sins may be settled with forgiveness through repentance. Talk with your parents about what it looks like to repent of your sins. At lunch, ask them what repentance looks like in their life. Parents of children, you're welcome for this investment into your sanctification. Back to John. John did not only come with a message. He came with a sign. Baptism. Baptism with water. A visible public expression corresponding with an inward washing away of sins. We'll come back to the significance of baptism in a bit, but let's press on to see how people respond to John. Look down at verses 5 and 6. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. People swarm out of the city of Jerusalem in the region of Judea to hear John. The people were going out to John not because he was something to see, 
but because he was something to hear. And that something was the good news that God is forgiving sins. To be honest, I wrestle with the details of John's camel hair attire and his locust appetite. As best as I can tell, locusts and camel hair never won anybody any friends. But we need to give John some credit because having a belt to keep his britches up and wild honey may have won a friend or two. But it still doesn't explain the droves of people that stream out into the wilderness to hear him. I think that the odd qualities about John simply show that he's nothing to look at. In Matthew 11, Jesus talks about John. He says, As they went away, Jesus began speaking to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Jesus agrees. John ain't nothing to look at. But John's sight was not pleasant to the eyes, but oh, how sweet was his message in their ears. Even more to the soul. The Lord is coming, and he will forgive your sins. Consider the kind of people who would go out into the wilderness to hear about the forgiveness of sins. What kind of people do you think that they were? Who do you think would take an interest in a message of the forgiveness of sins? It is sinners. My friends, if there was a man out in the wilderness preaching about the forgiveness of sins, would you go? Would it be worth the inconvenience to pack up your belongings, to walk boring hours on end, to endure hunger and thirst to hear how your sins can be forgiven? Or what would keep you from going out into the wilderness to hear John? Is it your sins that make you ashamed that keep you from coming to God? Look down at verse 5 again. Right now, if you feel too ashamed to come to God, look at the scripture and see the effects of forgiveness. People from the religious capital of Jerusalem and David's district of Judea are flocking out to John, hearing him preach, getting baptized, confessing their sins. Why would anyone do that? Seriously. Guests here at church, have you ever found it odd that Christians confess their sins? I mean, sure, God knows everything, but... Do we really have to say it out loud? And don't you find it even odder that people confess their sins in front of other people? I challenge you, sample the freedom of Christianity. When your sins have been dealt with, you don't need to hide from them anymore. How does that freedom compare with your reality? In church, let me 
encourage you to follow the example of these curious travelers. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to one another. Don't keep them a secret. Where our sins are dealt with, we have no need to hide. People are flooding out into the wilderness in order to get baptized in the Jordan, confessing their sins. It's insane to confess your sins unless there's the safety of God's forgiveness. But John came preaching a baptism of repentance into the forgiveness of sins. Why would these people go out to be baptized by John in the Jordan River unless repentance was the way to forgiveness? An old voice of a prophet rings out. The Lord is coming, so watch out for his messenger. He's coming in the wilderness. John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance into the forgiveness of sins. But do we have any of John's words? This brings us to our second point, a new voice. Look down at verse 7. And he preached, that's John, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's new voice rings out in the wilderness. The voice of a man who's not dead, but alive and audible. John is the messenger foretold by Isaiah, but his message is exactly the same. The Lord is coming. There's one who comes after me. The message doesn't end with me, the messenger. It points forward to the greater one who's coming after me. In the baptism that I baptize with water, it points forward to a greater baptism of the Holy Spirit. So look for the great one. And to find him, look for the Holy Spirit. End of second point. John's role, the new voice, is simply to put, for, put point forward. We can't stop with him because the Lord is coming. An old voice says, the Lord is coming. Look for his messenger. A new voice says, the Lord is coming. Look for his baptism. And now, a divine voice says, the Lord is here. Let's look at verses 9 to 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of, of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus shows up from Nazareth, steps into the Jordan River with John, and wild things start to happen. The heavens rip open. The Holy Spirit descends, and God speaks. I don't know about your baptism Sunday, but this is a touch different than mine. I do not say this to minimize my baptism as much to maximize the distinctiveness of Jesus. I believe my baptism was a significant day. 
I publicly stood before the congregation of Williams Trace Baptist Church in Sugarland, Texas, and I obeyed Jesus' commands to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I was welcomed into the fellowship of the church and received new privileges to approach the Lord's table with my spiritual brothers and sisters. That's significant. If you are a follower of Jesus and you've not been baptized, I encourage you to talk with your pastor here about what it looks like for you to obey the Lord's command to be baptized. But while my baptism was significant, it was not unique. If you are a baptized follower of Jesus, we share in the same baptism, one baptism. However, Jesus' baptism is unique. Its uniqueness does not come from its geography. You and I could get baptized in the Jordan River, and all we would be doing is forfeiting the opportunity to celebrate that with our local congregation. We could get baptized by John, but John baptized many others. And nothing like this happened. The uniqueness of Jesus' baptism came from the fact that it was Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the sinless one entering into the baptism waters of sinners. The heavens ripping open, the Spirit descending, God speaking from above, it all blasts out the good news, the Lord is here. My friends, isn't that the good news that brought you here today? God came down. Take it to the bank. Jesus is the unique one. He is the firstborn of the Spirit. He is the one from heaven who came down to earth. He is the one the Father commends. He is the Lord. And the Lord is swimming in our waters. The Jordan River in our world, God was baptized there. In Jesus, God came down to us. He did not wait for us to climb up to him, and he did not stay in the heavens apart from us. God came down in Jesus Christ. And look at how he did it. Jesus did not dip his toe in the Jordan. He did not wade down into his waist. He was plunged from head to toe, and the heavens opened up to say, this is what kind of God I am. Friends, don't you see it? Don't you know what baptism is about? He was buried. We are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to new life. When Jesus went down into the water and came back out again, don't you know what that depicts? This is what kind of God I am. I'm going to lay my life down into the grave and then I'm going to take it back up again. I am going to die and then I'm going to rise. I'm going to take all your sins down to death and then I'm going to give you new resurrection life. So come, all you sinners, come to me. Friends, doesn't that make you want to repent? Doesn't that make you want to love Jesus, to trust him? What are you waiting for? The Lord is here and he has come down for you. And did you hear what God spoke from heaven? I love you. You are my son, the beloved one. I am well pleased with you. 
I delight in you. Do you need confirmation that Jesus is the unique, righteous one of God? The Holy One. The One who John is not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandal. Jesus hears the divine voice of God say, I'm well pleased with you. Have the heavens ever torn open such that you heard the voice of God trumpeting his commendation of you? No, you have not. You will not. Neither will I. That place is reserved for the righteous one. But do you see what God is doing in Jesus? He has ripped open the heavens and sounded his I love you. This is my righteous son. And he has promised that we can be united to Jesus. We can be hidden in Jesus. We can be commended, loved, and righteous in Jesus. Friends, what is keeping you from coming to Jesus? Cast it away. It's not worth it. A day is coming where the only verdict that we will care about is not the conclusion of our friends or the evaluation of our bosses. On that day, all we will care about is the righteous verdict of God, which speaks a thundering, I am well pleased to all who trust in Jesus. And... On that day of judgment, repenting sinners who place their trust in Jesus will audibly hear in heaven, I am well pleased with you. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you need more confirmation still? The skies open up. The Holy Spirit descends and God speaks do you remember what John said? Look for the Spirit. Here it is, descending on Jesus. You are my son, the beloved one. I take delight in you. Let's take a step back and look at this scene. You have the sun in the water. You have the Spirit descending. And you have the Father speaking. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one. All three persons in one place. Don't you see that the Trinity is not just a theological concept, but a historical fact? Do you see that the doctrine of the Trinity did not arise at the drafting of the Apostles' Creed or at the Council of Nicaea? but arose when God decided to tear open the heavens and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. And God called Jesus my son in the Jordan River. The Trinity is a theological term, but it depicts a historical reality. United in being, distinct in person, one substance, different roles, it's all right here. All three persons in one place. At one time. Notice how some of the heresies surrounding the Trinity melt away in light of this passage. For example, one error in thinking about our God is to say that he's one God who takes three different forms. Kind of like water. He could be steam. He could be water. He could be ice. 
God could be one substance, but take three different modes. Hence the title modalism. But this is not our God. He is simultaneously three in one. Just think of our passage. If Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were merely different modes of God, this passage makes no sense at all. You would have the Spirit descending for a bit and then disappearing and returning to the heavens to speak as God the Father. But then he had to get back down in the water to be the Son. And then if that's not implausible enough, when the Spirit descends upon Jesus, he would have to do some weird holographic strobe thing, switching back and forth fast enough to where he looked like he was in both places at one time. No. That is not our God. A fundamental belief to the Christian life is that our God is simultaneously three persons in one being. The Father has always been the Father. The Son has always been the Son. The Holy Spirit has always been the Holy Spirit. And yet these three are one. United and yet distinct. The Son eternally begotten from the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Always three, yet always one. Always one, yet always three. Do you see why this is such a big deal? Remember John's preparation. His preparation had the primary emphasis of repentance into the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins must be accomplished. This gets wildly practical for you and me. Have you ever experienced a knock on the door with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness on the other end? I did yesterday. Let me equip you with one question that may be helpful in future interactions like that. Who has the authority to forgive sins? The one who was sinned against or another? The question is essential. Who can forgive our sins? The one who can forgive sins is the one we should approach for the forgiveness of our sins. Go to the one who has the authority to accomplish the task. A short case to illustrate the point. Let's say, for example, my dad has a business partner who cheats him and breaks their partnership agreement. Can I, as his son, go to the cheating party and say, hey, don't worry about it. I know you broke the partnership agreement, but you're forgiven. No. The one who was sinned against is the one who has the authority to forgive sins. Consider your sins against God. Who has the authority to forgive them? When a heretical religion like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses start playing with the Trinity, they're not just breaking orthodoxy. They're breaking forgiveness. If Jesus is not very God of very God, he has no authority to forgive our sins. But since he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, Jesus 
has the authority to forgive our sins. And remember John's promise of a greater baptism. A baptism of the Holy Spirit. Flip over to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Let's look at verse 3 together because it alludes to our passage. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. He presented himself, that's Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, look a little bit further down at the beginning of chapter 2. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Look for the Holy Spirit. And you want to know the first sermon that was ever preached by someone who was indwelled by the Holy Spirit, one of the apostles? It was Peter, the source material for our gospel. Peter provides this at the conclusion of his sermon. Look down at chapter 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Are you looking for the great one? Are you looking for the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit? Look no further than Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. An old voice saying, the Lord is coming. A new voice repeating, the Lord is coming. And God himself saying, the Lord is here. Let's pray. God, we praise you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God, three in one. The Father drafting up our salvation before the world began. The Son coming to accomplish it. And the Holy Spirit demonstrating its power within us. God, we praise you for your word. Thank you for sending your Son. And thank you for telling us to look for him. Thank you even more 
for telling us to repent of our sins and to trust in him because he is all we need. Jesus, you are our Savior, and we pray in your name. Amen.